Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I'm Jeremy Scott. It's Monday night. I know it's a little odd for us to be popping up on Monday nights, at least on Facebook. We appreciate your support, and we appreciate you listening to the program. My guest tonight on National Paranormal Day, I'm so excited to have here Lionel Friedberg. It is National Paranormal Day, in case you haven't heard. Which basically doesn't mean anything except it's just an official observance, right? Because paranormal events, well, they happen all year long. And they don't just happen around Halloween. They don't just happen at night. Uh, If you've ever heard from people who have lived through this kind of activity, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's fun that there's an observance, at least for these events, from time to time. And today, yes, it is National Paranormal Day. And so we're going to talk about the paranormal tonight on the program. Or today, or this morning, uh, whenever you listen to this. Because this is available exclusively for you uh, subscribers to listen to it uh, on, on your time. Of course, you can join us live on Facebook, but you can listen to it after the fact as well on Facebook, and you could also uh, go over to our Patreon page. And if you want to do it that way, you'll get access to the show on demand, and you can get all of the other shows that we do as well, the Saturday night show that goes out to terrestrial radio affiliates and streaming networks and is available on all the podcast apps. We just turn that around as a commercial-free version, and for $4 a month, you go to Patreon and you can join us. 
Emmy award-winning producer and New York Times best-selling author Lionel Friedberg has spent 50 years making films as diverse as full-length theatrical features and television documentaries. He's worked as a director of photography on 18 feature films and wrote, produced, and directed for National Geographic, PBS, and National Broadcast and Cable Networks, including the Discovery Channel, A&E, and the History Channel. His work has taken him to the sound stages of Hollywood and to the most remote regions of the Earth, exposing him to the extraordinary wonders of our planet. I've also brought him into a close contact with many unforgettable personalities, and I'm sure there are many of those personalities uh, in the world of Hollywood and film. And he's also uh, talked to scientists and politicians and entertainers and people who have survived like near-death experiences, his observations of Otto also taught him that life is far more complex and infinitely stranger than we can imagine. When he was struck by an unexpected life-threatening illness, his efforts to find a way to save his life took him back to Africa, where he encountered the age-old rituals and powerful healing methods of African shamans. And he writes about his journeys in Forever in My Veins, how film led me to the mysterious world of the African shaman. And so it is uh, so good to have on the program Lionel Friedberg. Hello, sir. Hi, Jeremy. Good to be with you. My pleasure to have you here. And so you have documented all sorts of uh, paranormal and spiritual encounters, uh, from my understanding. What kind of stuff are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about a range of of different topics, subjects, incidents that happened throughout my life. But actually, the fact that you introduced the show by saying today is Paranormal Day, that's really interesting. And I'm delighted to be on your show on a day like this because the most unbelievable paranormal, if you like, um, incident that I I think I, I can recall goes back over 60 years when I was uh, living and working in Central Africa in <clears throat> in the first television station in Central Africa, and it was at the time, at that time, it was a British colony. the uh, The country was called Northern Rhodesia, but eventually it gave up its uh, its colonialism, and Britain gave all its territories away. Folks who were around at that time or who studied a bit of history know that all the colonial powers, the European powers, gave up their African colonies, and in 1964. This country, northern Rhodesia, became the Republic of Zambia. And I was working at this uh, television station there. And I, I had a wonderful time. Um, it was an extraordinary period of, of, of my life. It was at the beginning of my career. I was a young guy. I was not, not, not quite 20 years old, actually. And, um, and anyway, I, I was a cameraman in the studio. And um, one day after independence came, the entire staff, there were, and we were all white guys, of course, um, and there were no more than about 30 people at the station. We all got a pink slip to say, thanks very much, you've all done a wonderful job, but your services are no longer required because the government is taking over the station. They nationalized the station, which we totally understood and accepted, of course. Uh, but the, the query was, the big question was, especially for me, a young guy like me, what was I going to do with my life? Now, I was born in South Africa, and I grew up in the racist system of apartheid, which is one of the reasons why my family left South Africa, and which is why I found myself in northern Rhodesia in the first place. 
Um, but the big, big question was, what am I going to do with my life now that I've lost my job? You know, I had to give it over to a, a trainer, young person, uh, a, a, a local Zambian, uh, to take over my job. And uh, my big question was, where to now? You know, and we had a really nice guy working for us at home, a black guy from the Bemba ethnic group. And I went back home that night, late at night, with my tail between my legs. I thought, wow, what am I going to do? And the next morning when I got up, I went to speak to this guy who worked for us. His name was David. And I said, David, a terrible thing has happened. Um, I was fired yesterday. And he said, oh, no, what are you going to do? And I said, well, that's my, that's my problem. I don't know. I don't really want to go back to South Africa because of the racist apartheid system that was in practice there at the time. My dream was always to go to Hollywood, but here I was stuck in the middle of the African hinterland, in the middle of the jungle, and now I was out of a job. And I said to him, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, let me think about it, and you see if I can find someone to help you. Well, I, I thought, what on earth can he possibly come up with? What on earth can he possibly um, find which may uh, help me solve my problems and my dilemma as to where my, my, my future path may lie? Anyway, a couple of days later, he comes to me and he said, I found someone. And on Thursday, you and I were going to drive into the bush in your car. And I'm taking you to see someone who may help you. I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea what may happen. And comes this, uh, the Thursday, and there we are, you know, trundling into the bush in my little, my little uh, uh, VW Volkswagen uh, Beetle on this dirt road. And we come to a little uh, um, township, and on the edge of it is a single house, a tiny little house, virtually a, a mud hut. Um, and David says, this is the place. And I said, David, where on earth are we? What have you taken me to? And he said, trust me. Well, I did because I, I, you know, I knew the guy. He'd worked for us for years and, you know, he and I were good buddies. We used to go into the bush quite often to take photographs of tribal uh, um, dancers and people living in the bush. And I said, all right, you know, let, let's see what happens. And he knocked on the door and this ancient little old woman opened the door first. She was huddled over. Look like a uh, um, like like if if you if you think of the witch from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, that wonderful Walt Disney movie, she reminded me of that. But she was um, also a Bemba woman, and she spoke absolutely no English. And with this long bony finger, she beckoned us into her house. And I went inside with David, and uh, she said, "Sit down on the floor in in Bemba." David translated for me, and we sat on the floor in this little tiny room. And on the uh, walls around us, there were a couple of little uh, shelves and things in which there were a variety of objects that I could not identify. I had no idea what they were. They were like leaves and grasses and pebbles and sands and ground-up powders, animal skins, all sorts of weird stuff. Clearly, this lady was a shaman. What we used to call uh, back in the day, long, long time ago, what, what, what we used to call a witch doctor. That's what she was. She was a shaman. And uh, in, in, in Zambia, they go by the name of Nganga, which means someone who can see into the future. And she told us to sit down on the floor, and she, there was a little grass mat there, and she, on, on the grass mat was a little animal skin bag, and she shook it. And it sounded like marbles or, you know, broken cutlery or, you know, broken crockery inside. I don't know what it was. Anyway, she handed the bag to me, and she told David to tell me to blow into this bag and say my name, which I did. I had no idea what any of this was going to lead to. Of course, I was just going with the flow here, you know. 
Anyway, I blew into the bag and then she shook it and she turned it upside down and all these little bones fell out and other little things like pebbles and a couple of dice and a few bottle tops and all sorts of weird tiny little objects. Now, some of these bones are what all shamans use. They come from certain animals in in the bush, a lion, a hyena, certain antelopes and so on. And they have specific powers because the shamans in Africa use the bones as a medium of communication with the spirit world. The bones, when the way they fall on this grass mat, they fall into a certain pattern and the shaman can read a meaning into the way they have fallen. And she looked at these bones and she started to tell me about my life. And every single thing that that little old woman told me like 60 years ago came true. There were incidents and uh, events that I had no conception what they meant. None whatsoever. I just wrote them down. I couldn't remember them all. And I didn't write them all down because she was cuddly. She was just carrying on and on and on. You know, these things were just rolling out of her. And David was doing his best to translate for me. You know, and she said, to, she said, she's told me things like, you're going to cross the great big water one day and you're going to go to the other side of the world. And there you will find your future and there will be Big, big lights and famous people. Now, this is a woman who lives in the African bush, remember. She probably had never been more than 10 miles away from that village all her life. And she's telling me that I'm going to go to the northern hemisphere. I'm going to cross a big water, which I guessed was the sea. You know, And she basically said, that's where I'm going to find my future. Well, my dream was always to come to Hollywood and work in the movies. And in actual fact, that's what she was seeing in the bones. And she told me all kinds of really amazing things. Some of it was pretty scary uh, because some of it, most of it, I didn't understand at all. Like she said to me, for, for example, one day in your work, you will go to a place where there is no color at all. There is just white everywhere. Everything is white. There's no color. She's talking about the afterlife. <laughs> No, she wasn't. She was talking, and this I only realized what she was talking about when it came to pass. And what happened was, in 1991, I was doing a series of science shows for PBS for a television series called The Infinite Voyage. And one of the shows was about the, the Antarctic. In other words, um, to, a scientist going down to the Antarctic to check on, are sea levels changing? Is acidity going up in the marine environment? You know, is the ozone hole a reality? You know, is carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases increasing? You go to the Antarctic to find out about stuff like that. You, like for example, you dig into the ice and you get an ice core, and a three-foot-long chunk of ice takes you back 300 years because there are bubbles trapped inside the ice. And those bubbles relate to the atmosphere at the time that the snow fell and condensed. So, you know, you can see how uh, science goes to the Antarctic to find out a lot of stuff about about the planet. And that's what the show was all about. And it was only when I was on that show, and this is 1991 now, right? Uh, When I saw that woman, it was 1964. So we're talking about almost three decades later. And it was it was uh, it was during the making of that, and we were down there in in December. And so, if you're in the southern hemisphere, all the way down south in the Antarctic uh, in December, uh, it's basically the southern summer. 
and the sun does not set that far south uh, on the planet. So we had perpetual daylight. But at about midnight, I went up on the deck of this uh, research ship that we were working on to keep to, to, to do my notes. Uh, you know, I used to write everything down, keeping copious notes about everything, obviously to use in the narration later when I, when I got back to the studio here, here in L.A. And I was trying to describe the world, what it was like being down there. And I said, you know, it's like being trapped in a completely white world, absent of all color. And suddenly it struck me, bam, this, this old woman in her mud hut in Africa foresaw that 30 years ago. She said, you're going to go to a world where there is no color, it is only white, and that's where I am. And she went on and on about a lot of other things that all came to pass. I mean, I could keep going about this for hours, but that's just an example of, of her unbelievable foresight or insight into my life, how she saw these images that all came to pass. Did you have a belief in the paranormal or the supernatural or whatever label we want to put on it prior to this, Lionel? You know, I was a young guy, right? And when you live in Africa, you come across a lot of really strange things. And I'll give you an example. When I grew up in South Africa, um, listen, white folks were privileged, of course, under the racist system of apartheid. Everybody had a black servant who lived in a tiny room in the backyard. Everybody had that, and we had we had a servant as well. And when I was a little tyke one day, I went into our, our servant's room, and I, I noticed that her bed, each leg of the bed was on three bricks. In other words, to make the bed higher um, above the ground. And I, I asked her, I said, "Why do you do that?" And she said, "Oh, we all do it." And I said, "Why?" And she said, "Ah, because of the tokolosh." And I said, "The what?" She said, because of the tokolosh. And I said, what is that? And she started to, she was, she, you could see she was fearful. She didn't want to talk about this, but she said, he's the little old man who, who is this little monster that goes around at night catching people, killing people, eating people, kidnapping people. He's covered in hair. He's got long teeth. He's got a long tail. You know, they all believed in this thing called the tokolosh. And without exception, Every single servant that I ever knew or talked to had a profound belief in this, this supernatural creature called the Tokolosh who could steal your soul or, uh, you know, invade your presence or all, all that sort of thing. So from a kid, I was very aware of the fact that the supernatural world was part and parcel of life on the African continent. And, and that became evident uh, many, many, many times later on. It's a very strange continent and people adhere to some extraordinary beliefs. And the, the most important thing about living in Africa, if, if you seek medical advice, I'm not talking about going to uh, a clinic or a doctor or, you know, a, a normal hospital, but if you go to one of these shamans and you seek help, for a medical problem, you can also ask that person to contact your ancestors to find out why am I sick? What did I do wrong? How can I correct this? And the shaman would come up with weird concoctions and tell you what to do, you know, and tell you to take ritual baths because your ancestors would be with you. There's a whole thing about, it's all about the ancestors. It's all about the supernatural world. And it's as it, it is as real today and as adhered to today, even in huge modern cities like Nairobi and Johannesburg and all the rest, it's still very prevalent in society. It's an extraordinary continent, and the beliefs in all of that are profound. 
And later on, when I started doing ethnic uh, filmmaking and ethnographic filmmaking, uh, you know, I discovered a lot of uh, a lot of this to be totally true. When I lived in villages with various tribes and covering their uh, their culture, their history, their um, their spiritual beliefs. Uh, so yes, I was always a believer in uh, in ghosts, goblins, and things that go bump in the night. Right from a kid, right from a get from when I was young. So you obviously had some um, education at at one point in order to do all of this uh, film production. Um, did you have that uh, in mind that you wanted to make you know paranormal sort of uh, films as you went through schooling, or how did that come about? That uh, well, I didn't uh, think about making paranormal films. I wanted to I wanted to make big Hollywood movies because I mean I fell in love with the movies when I was maybe five or six like years. Like science ago. fiction kind of things? I loved science fiction, and I went to every single Saturday matinee, you know, where, where all the sci-fi uh, serials were playing, and there was a lot of them, you know. I'm talking about, uh, you know, Superman and all, all, all that stuff. I, I, I was an, an avowed fan of all of that stuff, and I loved all of those B movies of the fifties, those cheap black and white movies of you know uh, atomic ants and monsters crawling through the Mojave Desert. I loved that stuff, and um, I was a believer in the in the in 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 in, in the fact that that the world around me was perhaps not as it seemed to be. That there was much more to it than most people uh, said or believed. Certainly, my teachers, my parents, you know, um, the 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 adults. We, we kids believed in all that stuff. In fact, you know, we believed that there was a... I lived in a small town, which is today actually the big international airport uh, outside Johannesburg, a little town called Kempton Park. And we were convinced that there was a witch who lived in this 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 uh, dilapidated little house at the edge of town. And, you know, we were terrified of this house because we believed that that woman, you know, would prowl the streets at night and that she would bring evil onto the town. It was straight out of Ray Bradbury. You know, it was amazing. We, were there uh, accounts of that? Or was it just... They, uh... There were accounts, but who knows if they were true. You know, yeah. I don't... I probably, or, you know, kids believe stuff, right? Um, especially young kids. They'll, they'll, they'll buy into anything. Yeah. So, was it? Did you ever find that it was more than just a child's imagination? That there was any verif- anything verifiable? No, I didn't do that. And in, in fact, uh, you know, I left that town when I was about seven years old. We moved uh, to a bigger city. We moved to Johannesburg, and uh, so uh, I left that behind. But you know, um, even going, my my mother was born in South Africa. My father was an immigrant from Northern Europe, uh, but my mother had family who lived. Uh, on farms all over the country, and we would often go and stay with uh, members of that of the family, my mother's family, and we stay in these farmhouses. And I'd hear, you know, uh, the especially from the black black people who were around us, you know, they tell us ghost stories and things like that. We used to scare the big Jesus out of out of us kids. We believed all of it, uh, and it was, you know, when you're out in the African bush at night and it's dark and the sky is like a firmament of you know diamonds up in the sky. And you, you really aren't quite orientated as to where you are, and you hear these tales. You know, you believe that stuff. Yeah, you do. And then, as you grew up, you started to have some of these experiences yourself, and that belief went from more than just an inkling, right? Or am I putting words in your mouth? No, uh, that uh, you're, you're not putting words in my mouth I, because. 
when I, in my adult years, I had lots of experiences. But as a kid, no. Once I left South Africa and went to northern Rhodesia, which became Zambia, you know, I, I didn't have any personal experiences of that. But later on in my life, I did many, many times, many times particularly when I worked with tribes, but I'm talking about living in cities as well. You know, I, when I was, uh, when I had, uh, uh, I was in my twenties, I had come to the States and I worked in Hollywood for a while. And then I worked in Canada and I had to go back to South Africa because my father took ill in, uh, in Zambia and I had to go and I was an only child. So I had to get him from South Africa, from Zambia back down to South Africa for, for, for proper medical care. And, uh, so I, I, I stayed once that happened, you know, my mother was there and my father was ill and eventually he passed away. Um, and I had two little guys who were my, my godchildren, two little tiny, little tiny little guys, um, who my, my, I was their godfather and they lived in a, in a, in a house in Johannesburg, an old house. And they always used to say that there was a little, there was a, a vent in the wall in the living room. Um, and they, these two little kids, the one was five and I think the other one was maybe six or maybe they were five and four. I don't know, but they used to sit on the floor and, you know, play with cars and play with their toys. And together they would look up at this, this ventilator in the wall at the same time and say, Oh, look, he's coming back again. And, you know, of course their mother and their father would say, Oh, you're, you're only imagining it. And one day I said to their parents, I said, stop telling them that maybe they are seeing something. And I said to them, Ruby, Brad, what is it that you're seeing? And they said, there's this old man and he's coming through that hole in the wall and he's coming. And, and you know, it's as though it was as clear as a bell to them. They could see it. None of us adults could see it. Uh, and I thought, you know what? Maybe they really are seeing something. And I said to their father one day, I said, you know, Jaime, why don't you go and find out about, go and look at, go to the deeds office and find out about this house that you're living in and see if anything ever happened on the other side of that wall, which was actually a bedroom. And uh, he said, oh, it's a lot of, you know, that's a waste of time. I said, look, your, your, your two boys are seeing something. They really are. And they keep repeating this to you all the time. How can they be imagining it? So their dad went to the deeds office and sure enough, he found out after he did some research that there was a man, an old man that these children described almost exactly because uh, um, they found a photograph of him who actually passed away in the room on the other side of that vent. So these kids were seeing the ghost. What can, what, give the audience an idea of what, uh, films and uh television shows you've worked on because it's i i want folks to uh to know that i think it's important you know as i'm my career began uh as i said in television then i went to south africa then i came to hollywood then i went back to africa and eventually i came a i became a cinematographer on uh, major feature movies and i i photographed as you said earlier in your intro i photographed uh, 18 of them uh but what i eventually fell in love with was was documentaries and so from about 1970, let's say about 1975 onwards, I kind of moved away from feature films into the documentary world because I really liked um, documentary subjects, particularly science. And uh, I did lots of, uh, lots of documentaries. I, I used to research them myself and write them and direct them, photograph them. Um, so I worked on a ton of, of, of shows. When I came to, to the States – 
I worked for PBS. I worked on a series called The Infinite Voyage. I did a, a retrospective of the Voyager mission to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. I did the show down in Antarctica. I did a show for, and I forget which cable channel it was. It could have been A&E, might have been the History Channel. I don't recall, but it was in the 90s. I did a fascinating two-hour show called Beyond Death, where my brief was, what happens to consciousness or, if you like, the soul, when the body dies. In other words, is there life after death? And, and the network was absolutely adamant. They said, don't give us any haunted house, you know, ooga booga stuff and things that go bump in the night BS. We want science. Go and, go and speak to the scientists. Go and speak to the researchers and find out what's really going on. Does the spirit survive? The consciousness survived the body after death. And I met people at Princeton University, and I met people at the Monroe Institute in Virginia. I met people who had near-death experiences. There was absolutely no question in my mind after I had finished that two-hour show that death is by no means the end of things at all. We continue after that. And I met people who described there was a, there was a woman, for example, in Atlanta. And she developed an aneurysm on her brain. And the only way they could operate on her to, to, to get rid of this aneurysm was to open her skull and to stop the blood flow so that it, she wouldn't lose too much blood. And in, in a short period of time, within minutes, once the blood flow had been stopped, or in other words, stopping her heart, they would remove the aneurysm, sew it up, patch it up, and then get her heart going again, close up the skull, and then revive her. So she was she was basically clinically dead for about, I forget what it was, but maybe three or four minutes. And this woman told me that when, uh, she, when they put her to sleep, she, fell, she felt herself floating out of her body. And her name was Pam. It's a very well-known story. It's been documented quite a lot. And I know she's featured in quite a lot of uh, television shows. She's been interviewed um, quite frequently. And she said, I, 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 I floated up out of my body and there I was hovering above myself in the operating theater, looking down at myself on the operating table while the surgeons and the nurses were working on me, and I could see exactly what they were doing, and it was fascinating. And I said, Pam, how do you know that it's true? And she said, I'll tell you how. Because when, when they revived me, the surgeon you know, came to see me in, my, in the ICU afterwards, and he said, how are you feeling, Pam? And she said, oh, I feel absolutely fine. And he said to her, um, um, uh, you, you, no pain or anything? She said, no, in fact, it was a, a fascinating experience. I floated up out of my body, and I watched exactly what you guys did to me. It was fascinating. Of course, the surgeon said, yeah, right, That's you, know, you really did right you were clinically dead sweetheart and she said oh yeah she said what about that time when when you asked the nurse for a certain instrument and she dropped it and you scolded her why did you do that and he said you were clinically dead when that incident happened did you actually see that and she said yes and he said he couldn't believe it because she was clinically dead at the time that this incident happened. He asked the nurse for a certain instrument. I don't know what it was. She dropped it and he said, no, don't, don't, be so, don't be so dumb. Give me another one. You know, and Pam had witnessed this incident. And he said, oh, OK, so give me some more uh, proof that you were awake while the surgery was going on. And he, because the surgery was so long, it lasted at least a couple of hours. He had a little tape deck going in the corner of the operating room. And he was playing music, but very, very softly. He always used to operate with music in the background. And she, Pam, the, the patient who was supposed to be unconscious and dead for part of the time, could recall 
a lot of the songs and the music that he played. Because she said to him, I don't like all your music. He said, what do you mean you don't like my music? And she said, I know what you're playing. And she named the various songs that were playing in the operating room while he was operating on her. I interviewed him, the surgeon, separately to her. He was absolutely convinced that what she was describing was the truth. She had left her body and she was fully conscious on another level, on another realm, in another, in another space, in another, in an, on another dimension while her physical body was undergoing the surgery and was partly clinically dead. You know, and I'll tell you something else, uh, Jeremy. I um, also interviewed a bunch of kids in, uh, in Seattle. There's a guy up there, uh, a pediatrician, who specializes in children, young children. I'm talking about kids of the age of about six, seven, eight, nine years ago, young, young kids who have all had near-death experiences, who were clinically dead for a while. And um, he, keeps a, he kept a file. And all the uh, pediatricians in, in Seattle knew about him and about his, uh, his work in the field. And they would report cases that, that, that they had worked on to him. So he interviewed all of these kids in the area, the, the sort of Seattle-Tacoma area. And uh, he kept a file on all of these kids. And the most extraordinary thing was that he asked all of those kids the same question, what happened when they put you to sleep? And all of these kids described the same sort of experience about tunnels of light, seeing people dressed in white, you know, voices speaking. One child said, I saw God. Another child said it was an angel. Another child said it was Jesus. Another child said, oh, it was my grandma. But they were all dressed in white. And they could all talk to me. And all of these children were given an option to wake up, in other words, to, to be revived, or to stay where they were. And all of those children said, no, I want to go back. I, I, you know, the, the, these, these white beings would say to them, do you want to go back? Then you press this green button or you pull that lever or you open that door. All of these kids who went back, who were revived after being clinically dead, for periods of time, told similar stories. And the amazing thing was that this pediatrician eventually said to all of these kids, draw what you saw for me. And they all drew, you know, these big rooms with this, this tunnel going to it and these, these beings in this room, they were all similar. And none of these kids even knew each other. So, you know, um, I think that he's written a book about that um, and, there's there's no question in my mind you know i mean i've had experiences even with my own father when my father passed away i know that my father came to uh communicate with me the night after he passed away um there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever in my mind about that death is not is not uh, a closing of a door it's the opening of another one I agree with you on that. So tell us more about the prophecies from uh, the shaman or uh, the year, word you were used, uh, gang, Ganga, Naganga? Yeah, well, that, that in, 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 in Central Africa, they go by the name of Nganga. In South Ganga. Africa, which is... So the, yeah, in, the first well, N would be silent, then Ganga. Yeah, Nganga. It's, uh, it's N-G-A-N-G-A, Nganga. But Anga. in South Africa, they go by a different name. They call themselves Sangoma. Sangoma is a Zulu word, uh, and it means healer or diviner, if you like. Someone who can foresee the future and, and, and help you. Sangoma. So most of the, of the shamans in Africa that I have met 
were in the southern African area, particularly South Africa. And I did a I did a series in the 70s for television called The Tribal Identity. South Africa has lots of different tribal groups who speak different languages. In fact, South Africa has 11 official languages, would you believe, although most people, of course, speak English. And um, all of these, 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 these tribes have very profound and very interesting, absolutely fascinating spiritual concepts uh, and, and beliefs and, and cultures that are, 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 are amazing to study. And that's what these, these shows were about. Uh, because white audiences knew absolutely nothing about their black neighbors, nothing whatsoever. And so in the mid-70s, when the writing was on the wall, and it, it was clear that apartheid could not continue, that this racist divide could not go on forever, it was time to introduce white audiences to their black neighbors. Uh, the, the, the main television network there decided to do the series called The Tribal Identity, and it, it fell to me to, to write and direct it. And, and I had a host who was an anthropologist, a fantastic guy by the name of Peter Becker, who was a profoundly spiritual man in his own right. And we went and we, uh, we met a lot of Sangomas, uh, from various tribes. And, um, they, you know, they, they all told us, uh, uh, amazing things. But some of the incidents that you want, you were referring to that this old lady had told me about in, in Zambia. One of the other things that she said to me was, one day in your work, you will be working in the bush. And you must be very, very careful because you will almost lose your life to a very, very great beast. That's the word she used, a very great beast. You know, so immediately in my mind, of course, I'm thinking abominable snowman. I'm thinking of Yetis. I'm thinking of Godzilla. You know, I'm, you know, it sounded terrifying to me. I had no idea what she was referring to. She said, you'll almost lose your life to this great beast. So be very, very careful. And of course, I wanted to ask why, who, what do you mean? But she just kept babbling on and on and on. There wasn't time to ask questions. And it was only years later, and I'm talking about 1967, 68, I, was, uh, I took on an assignment um, to cover a safari. There were three guys who came out from California to Mozambique. And Mozambique is, uh, was at that time a Portuguese colony right next to South Africa on the east coast on the Indian Ocean. And it was full of wildlife at the time. Most of the wildlife now is gone due to civil war and and poaching and all that. It's terribly sad. But uh, those days, it was very, very rich in wildlife. And these guys came out on a big hunting safari. And I had never understood the whole concept or reason why why folks got any fun out of shooting wild animals, which is why I took the job. I wanted to find out what is it that drove people to do this? You know, where was the fun in that? So I, I took the assignment, and it was very interesting because the guy who who was uh, who was the, the one of one of these three people who came out from from California was a guy called Spud Millin, and he was the inventor of uh, a thing called the hula hoop, which took the world by storm in the in the fifties. Every every kid in the world had a hula hoop. And he also, uh, he was the one who brought to the market the, the Frisbee, his toy company. And so the guy was extremely wealthy and he came out with two of his buddies. One was a stockbroker, one was a lawyer. And they went to Mozambique on safari and they had a license to shoot all kinds of animals, including elephants. And um, each one had, had, a, had a, a, a license to shoot one elephant. And um, we had two white hunters who lived in Mozambique who led the safari. and. Um, we went out one day to, to – it was one of these white hunters turned to shoot his elephant. And we found this herd, 
And the, the, the leader, the white hunter, you know, said to one of these three guys, the American who was, whose turn it was to shoot the elephant, he said, you, you target that old guy on the right. That's an old bull elephant. He's sort of seen better days and, you know, let's take him out. You can, you know, the word was not kill or shoot, but take him out. Um, which I find a very fancy way of saying murdering, but anyway. Um, and he said, that's the one you shoot, but, but don't miss for God's sake, because if you miss, uh, that herd can, can, can stampede and go crazy and we'll be in real trouble. Uh, and the guy took aim and I got myself set up right behind him with my movie camera. Now remember, this is before the days of video. I'm using, I'm shooting on film. The camera is heavy. It weighs a ton. I've got a guy behind me holding an, an enormous battery connected to the camera. You know, it's a big deal those days. It wasn't like you use your phone as you do today or a video camera. It was film. And so I positioned myself behind this hunter and, and uh, the American, and he shot at that elephant and he missed. And the herd went absolutely crazy. There was dust and noise everywhere. And as the dust sort of filtered away, what was left behind where the herd was, was one single elephant. She was a female and she was guarding her calf. We didn't realize that she was a baby and she was guarding her little calf and she just stood still there. She didn't run with the rest of the herd because she knew her baby was in trouble. She was protecting her baby. And she looked at this guy who actually shot. She looked at him and she started to charge. She wanted to kill him because she thought that he was endangering her baby. And that's the white hunter standing right in front of me. And so she starts charging him. And in my viewfinder, all I see is this huge big elephant getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in my frame. And it's like an earthquake. The ground was shaking. Well, the hunter very rapidly ran out of shot. I couldn't move. I was absolutely frozen. And were it not for the fact that one of the, 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 the white hunters who, who led the safari stood behind me, and at the very last moment, he shot her, and she must have been no more than six feet away from me, and she crumbled down on her forelegs and then rolled over and died. If she, if she hadn't, she wouldn't have been able to stop. She would have killed me. And it was only that night that we were in camp, you know, in this wonderful bungalow with a thatched roof and, you know, the, the martinis were flowing and the vodka was flowing. And I, I went to sit by myself and I thought, God, you know, I, I could have been killed today. It, I, I say came so close to being killed. And it, it was like this great big, and it suddenly hit me again. Oh my word, that's what that old woman had seen. She said, be very, very careful because the great beast might kill you. And she had foreseen that, you know, um, she, she had foreseen so many things just by looking at those bones lying on the floor. And another incident, I'll give you an example. I, I did a show, um, I was working on a research ship in the South Atlantic. And one of the things she said to me uh, was also, she said, you must be very, very careful of the big water. She never used the word ocean or sea or anything like that. The big water. I mean, this woman probably never saw the ocean in her life. She lived in, you know, in, uh, Zambia was a landlocked country. And as I said, she'd probably never been further from her village than 10, you know, 10, 10 miles. And she saw all these images. She said, be very, very careful because one day in your work, the great big water might, is going to try to kill you. You must be very, very careful. 
uh, you must believe very, very strongly in your ancestors. And if you believe in your ancestors, they will protect you. And I had no idea what that meant. Anyway, so decades later, I'm on this research vessel. We're plowing through a storm at sea in the South Atlantic. And it was, the waves were like 120 feet high. I'm not kidding. And this ship was was falling into valleys of water, you know, and thudding down. The whole hull was shaking. I thought the ship was going to break into pieces. And the captain of the ship said to me, said to the whole, uh, all of us on board, the crew, the scientists, he said, I've got to turn around. We've got to, we've got to head back to, to Cape Town. If we keep going, we're going to end up in the Falkland Islands and we've got to turn around. But the storm is not abating. And I am at midnight tonight. I'm going to blow the horn of the ship. When you hear that blast, hold on to anything that you can because I'm going to turn the ship around. And we were all petrified. And at midnight, he blows the horn and he starts turning the ship. And that ship started to list in these, in these huge waves. You know that that ship was almost on its side. If we had been one inch more leaning over more than that, that thing would have capsized. That's how close we came. To, to, to capsizing and probably sinking in a storm at sea in the South Atlantic. That woman had seen that. She foresaw that. She told that to me. You know, on and on her stories went. Uh, it was extraordinary. And uh, what can I tell you? You know, the most important, le- the takeaway lesson from all of this is that these people have powers and capabilities way beyond our comprehension. And, you know, we think that, you know, with all our, our institutions and all our science and, uh, you know, all our learning and, and all our academies and whatever else that we learn about the way the world works. And, you know, some of the wisest and most profound people that I've met, you know, live in mud huts in the boondocks. Uh, how do they know this? All I can say is that there is so much more, so many more wonders to the world and this planet. And you don't have to go to scientific institutions to, 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 to know this stuff. They, th- these people who live in the middle of nature are probably closer to many of the truths of the way the world works than we are, than some of our scientists are. It's extraordinary. You know? And as I said, I love science. I've done a lot of science shows. I did a wonderful series for National Geographic called The Shape of Life, how, how body plans are developed in nature. I did a show uh, which actually won an Emmy Award called Mysteries Underground. It was all about the role of, the, of caves in human history. So, you know, science is, 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 a, is a field that I'm, that I'm really fascinated by. And I don't believe stuff. It's got to be proven. And I've got to know that it works. I've got to know the facts. Otherwise, I don't portray it and I don't put it into a movie. And yet, I know that there is more than our scientific institutions in the West are even big, are, are, are aware of. Of that, I have no doubt. All right, let's get to the other uh, encounters that you talk about in the book, uh, the near-death experience. We talked about the shamanism. You also uh, do discuss uh, a UFO encounter, and apparently this one comes with yes. some pictures of some, some kind. It's amazing. That was a, an amazing thing. I, you know, I read in, in the 1950s, there was a book called Flying Sources Have Landed by a guy called George Adamski. And I read that as a kid. I must have been, I don't know, I, might, my, I was probably 10 years old. And, you know, I thought, oh, my word, you know, we've, there, are, there, there, are, there, are, there are beings from other worlds visiting our planet. Uh, 
because the book was very, very convincing. And it's, it's become a classic, of course, ever since then. Yeah, at- Adam Ski is uh, one of those notable fixture, uh, figures in ufology yeah. referenced in a lot of books. Yeah, exactly. And he was the first guy to popularize the topic, you know. So the book was hugely popular. And I read that as a kid in South Africa. Even there it was very popular. So I was totally fascinated by the whole concept of UFOs and aliens and extraterrestrials right from the start. And when I saw the very, very first uh, The War of the Worlds in 1953, it's a fantastic movie made by George Pell, way better than Steven Spielberg's film, I can tell you that. Folks who who listen to this stuff and who like sci-fi, go back to the 1953 version of The War of the Worlds. It is fabulous. Anyway, I saw that, and I I think I was like nine years old when I saw that. So I was totally into UFOs always. And um, But, you know, I don't want to use the word belief. I'd rather use the term open-minded. I was always open-minded about this stuff. I I didn't imagine that I was seeing UFOs every five minutes and I didn't believe every story that I heard on the radio or that I saw in the newspapers. Yeah, nor should you. But I was totally, uh, yeah, you know, I was open-minded enough to consider the fact that this is this is truth that that there are extraterrestrials visiting our planet. So anyway, we cut to the year uh, now 1966, and I'm uh, I've just emigrated to to Canada from from Africa. This is before I went back to South Africa. I worked in Canada. I worked for the National Film Board, a fantastic institution who make uh, really amazing documentaries, and they are renowned around the world for the quality of their filmmaking particularly their documentaries. And I was very fortunate to get a job there um, as in, in the camera department with the National Film Board of Canada. So I, I was assigned a little uh, um, movie to make, uh, a very small crew, only three of us, on the history of housing and urban development in Canada. And I know the subject sounds boring, and in actual fact, it was boring. What we had to do was to travel around the whole of Canada. It was a great opportunity to see the country because we traveled the country from east to west, um, visiting cities and towns and small you know, uh, settlements to, 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 to analyze how and why humans cluster together in certain areas, why towns develop, you know, either it's an oil field or for agricultural reasons or because of a mine, you know, that sort of thing. That's what the documentary was all about. And it was made for the, 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 the housing uh, department of the Canadian government. Uh, as, uh, as, as an educational documentary. And so we were in the province of Saskatchewan and we had to go to a, a, a potash mine. Now, potash is a stuff that's dug out of the ground. I'm not quite sure what they, how they do it or what they do with it, but I think it's used in, in fertilizer. You dig it out of the ground and it creates a lot of dust when you do that. And, you know, and there was a potash mo- a plant. Uh, in Saskatchewan, in the middle of the cornfields, and Saskatchewan is as flat as a draft board, is as flat as as flat as a tabletop. No mountains, no valleys, no nothing. It's just from horizon to horizon, it's cornfields and crops. You know, that's all it is. But in the middle of one of these areas was one of these potash plants, and we had to go and film there. So we stayed at a little motel one night in the middle of nowhere. The, the, the only thing nearby was a railroad track. And um, 
You know, in the middle of the night, you'd hear the trains going by. It was amazing. Anyway, so the next morning, you know, the three of us, we get up. There's the director, the cameraman, and me. I was the assistant cameraman at that point. And uh, we had to drive. It was the days of station wagons. So we had a station wagon. We had our gear in the back. And we're driving towards this potash plant, which is about maybe 30, 40 miles away. And you could see the plant because there was a cloud of dust coming up from it. And the cloud of dust sort of hung in the sky above the plant. And as we got nearer and nearer to the plant, you know, this cloud got bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, when we eventually got to the gate of the plant, the guy at the, at the main gate said to us, he said, hey, you better get down to the parking lot and, uh, and, 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 and look up at this cloud above, above the plant because there's something in the cloud. So the director, you know, said, what are you talking about? Like what? And the guy said, we don't know, but there's something up there. There's something, there's something up there and it's shiny. And we said, "All right, let's get let's get down there." So we we drive down to the parking lot. Uh, we met by the manager of the plant. The director goes off with the manager to go and discuss the day's filming. But I stayed at the station wagon, set up the camera, and a couple of other guys came wandering over to me and they said, "Yep, there's something up in that cloud." See if you can see it through your camera. So I set up the camera. I put a long telephoto lens on and I sort of, you know, scanned this cloud, saw absolutely nothing. And, you know, these guys are sitting around me, you know, standing around, you know, just shooting the breeze and smoking. And the one, the, the guy said, you just stick around. When, when the breeze comes up, you'll see it. You'll see it. Don't worry. You'll see it. And sure enough, a little breeze came by and the cloud sort of filtered away. And I, I saw a glint of metal a metallic looking object sitting in, 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 in that cloud. It was up there. And so my goodness, I thought, wow, there is something up there. And I started running film again. It's film. It's not video. We're running film and, uh, the camera is running. And then the wind came up a little bit more and revealed this enormous disc sitting up in that cloud, dead still, not making any sound, no sign of propulsion, nothing, no windows, no doors, no engines, no nothing. Beneath it, there was like a sort of triangular-shaped object connected to the disc. I have no idea what that was, but I, ran, I got film of that. I, I ran about maybe minus five or six minutes of film uh, on this object. And then eventually the cloud gathered together again and concealed it, and it was gone, and it was amazing. And I told the director, I said, I got film of this thing. It's sitting up there in that sky. And he said, well, why don't you remove that, cut that roll of film, put it aside. You'll send it when we send your, when you send the film to the lab in Montreal, make sure that it goes with it, but just tell them to keep it separately. And we'll take a look at it when we get back to Montreal. Well, when we check out the dailies, you know, in the theater uh, in a couple of weeks from now, which is exactly what I did. I cut that bit of film off and put it into a separate can and it went with the rest of all the of the film that night we used to send film to the lab via by by rail not by air the only way to get to the lab was using canadian national railroad and um or or uh, canadian pacific and i sent it back to montreal and weeks later we get back to montreal and uh, we've got members of the housing, the housing and urban development department of the government with us in the theater, at the head of the camera department, and you know us, the crew who shot the stuff. And we're looking at hours and hours and hours of boring footage of you know little towns and small mines and stuff like that. And at the end of uh, you know five or six hours of watching all this, uh, the projectionist in the back of the theater yells out. He said, "What about this?" Um- a little roll here that says unidentified object. You want me to show that? And I said, you know, I yelled back. I said, yeah, put that on. 
So he put the role on of, of, of this film that I'd shot of this object. And by golly, there it is up on the screen as clear as daylight, exactly as I had seen it. This round disc, the silver round object uh, with the structure underneath it just sitting there in the sky. You know, a lot of people have said, well, how big, you know, how high. The height was impossible to gauge, but I can tell you this. This was before the days of the of the 747, but it, it must have been at least the size of a 747. It was huge, and it just sat there silently. And at the end of that, the head of the camera department looked at me and looked at the crew and said, what, what is that thing? Well, no one, of course, had a clue. And so the secretary of the uh, uh, woman by the name of Frankie Johnson, she pipes up from the back of the theater. She says, why don't we send it to that uh, to the U.S. Air Force? I believe they've got a research unit looking into the stuff. I think it's called Project Blue Book. <laughs> why don't we send it to them and see if they can identify it, which is what we did. She, she, she uh, had it couriered to um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And... A couple of weeks went by, and, you know, we were all very intrigued. We, most everybody forgot about it. But one day I was back at the, uh, at, the, at, the, at the studio in Montreal, and I was walking past the camera department, and I suddenly remembered the footage. And I went into uh, Frankie's office, and I said, Frankie, did we ever hear back from those guys in the States about that footage that we sent? And she said, look, I'll show you something uh, interesting. Um, here is, here is the, the, the documentation. I couriered it down. They've got it. So I have no idea. We haven't heard from them yet. I'll give them a call in the morning, So, which she did. And then a couple of days later, she, I, was, I was in that uh, same area of the building, and she calls me over. She said, you want to hear something? I said, yeah. And I go over, and she said, I called them. And they said they never received the footage. They denied ever getting the footage. You know, and I have had heard so many stories about a cover-up about UFOs, and I had personal experience of it right there and then, because we know that that footage was received by the, the, the guys at Project Blue Book at Wright-Patterson, and yet there was a denial that they ever got it. They, you know, they signed the footage, they accepted the package, but they denied ever seeing it. So, you know, um, I am still very, very interested in UFOs to this day, and uh, my personal belief is that we've been visited by you, by extraterrestrials probably for hundreds, thousands, and perhaps even millions of years. Um, my, uh, you know, if you think about it, um, I, I don't doubt that for one minute. I've read Zachariah Sitchin, I've read Graham Hancock, I mean, to all of these guys, and I go every year to contact in the desert in Palm Springs where you meet all of these people. You meet really good people. And I met Eric von Daniken, who wrote the definitive book about extraterrestrials visiting the Earth called Terrors of, of the Gods in the 1960s. When I read that book, I thought, oh, yes, oh, the classic. God, this guy. You know, that's the one. Yeah. And, you know, I've spent time talking to the guy and um, at Contact in the Desert, which is an amazing get together. I would have gone there last year and this year again, were it not for the, the COVID because uh, it was cancelled, but it's a, it's an amazing place to go. Yeah, you meet a lot of you meet a lot well, of curious people and a lot of people who really talk a lot of, a lot of junk. But I do want to say, Lionel, amazing people who go there. I do want to say it's technically not canceled. It is going to be happening virtually, but not in not in this person. Year, yes, this year it'll be virtual. That's correct. Yeah, and I've got my tickets ready to go. And uh, we'll actually be uh, doing uh, a really uh, awesome 
uh, presentation the entire month of June with a lot of the speakers who will be at Contact in the Desert. So everybody who's I'm listening very, I'm to this really tonight is... to hear that. That's great news. Gets to hear that for the first time tonight, so that's awesome. And uh, Lionel, I thank you for coming on the program, and I wanted to leave the audience with that note and uh, leave them dangling, uh, wanting more information. So how do they uh, get a hold of your book? They can. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com. It's at Barnes & Noble, or they can go to my website, which is Lionel Friedberg, my name, but that might be difficult for folks, but it's L I O N E L F R I E D B E R G, lionelfriedberg.com. That's my website, and that'll take them to sites where they can buy the book, or they just go on, go on Amazon uh, or to Barnes and Noble. The book is called Forever in My Veins, uh, and it's available right now. Good night, everyone. Bye.